thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Bianca Dobson. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's back chat will cover the pillar of thinking and also elements, I suppose, of your neurology. And uh, certainly we give great hope for those sufferers of headaches. Tell me today, as always, for the health podcast. It's great to pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Bianca Dobson. Hey, Bianca, how are you going? Hi, Paul. I'm great. I've had a great day in practice. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Now, headaches. It's something that we, uh, as chiropractors, have many patients experience and present to us, don't they? Don't we every day? We sure do. And it's uh, it's something that really, I think a lot of people struggle with on a daily basis and sometimes eventually seek care for it. So I can't wait to talk to our guest tonight. It, it's really interesting. I mean, headaches don't discriminate. You know, it doesn't matter as age, gender, race. You know, there's a there's a huge frequency of, of the population that suffer from headaches. So it is great to have our special guest on back chat, which is Dr. Peter Tushin. Peter was employed at Macquarie University for over 27 years and has just recently retired as an associate professor. Peter's areas of interest and research include the relationship of posture with neck pain, headaches and migraine, chronic pain syndromes, and the relationship of vertebral artery dissection stroke with chiropractic. Peter's had over 30 30 papers accepted for WFC congresses and received several international research awards. Peter conducted one of the largest RCTs on chiropractic and migraine to date in JMPT 2000 and was recently made a member of the WFC Disability and Rehabilitation Committee which is an international committee with many prestigious members. Peter has also maintained very successful private practice in chiropractic and has treated many patients over his 30 years in, pre- in clinic and is past president of COCA and recently received life membership of COCA in 2017. Congratulations, Peter, on your extensive career and welcome to Backchat. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure to be here. Peter, headaches are so commonly seen in practice. What are the most common types that we see? Uh, Yeah, look, the International Headache Society Classification um, Committee uh, described over 300 types of headaches. So uh, there are many, many um, types of headaches that uh, chiropractors and manual therapists won't really see. the key ones, uh, they define them into two main groups, primary headache and um, secondary headache. So the, the key ones that we will see are really uh, the primary headaches and they're um, migraine, tension headache, uh, cluster headache. Uh, there's another category they call uh, chronic daily headache. It used to be um, hemicranium continua. Um, and unfortunately for us, um, cervicogenic headache is one of those ones that there's a bit of controversy with. So it's not described as a primary headache. Um, it's, it's actually classified as a secondary headache. Um, they're very, very common, as, we, as everybody's already discussed. Um, the estimates are for migraine, it affects about 12% of the population. So uh, a ratio of three to one for females to males. So 18% of uh, females, nearly uh, one in five females can suffer migraines. Um, 
they estimate that there's approximately uh, 2 million migraine sufferers in Australia. Um, so that equates to uh, one migraine sufferer every five households. So it's quite uh, an extensive problem. Uh, tension, headache, the uh, incidence and prevalence is um, uh, also a little bit controversial. So the range is anywhere from uh, 20 up to 80%, depending on, on how strictly you, you apply the criteria, but approximately 40 to 50% um, of the population can suffer from tension headache. Um, so in the uh, Global Burden of Diseases studies, which gets published every uh, five years or so, um, tension headache is the second most common uh, condition um, with prevalence and migraine is the third most common. Um, any ideas what the most common problem is? Oh, I Go don't on. know. Go on, Tooth decay. Tooth decay for oh. headaches, right. <laughs> That makes it very, very common, in other words. Wow, that's right. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean... Uh... Of course, one of the, uh, the, the big problems for practitioners is um, uh, diagnosis. And so, obviously, with over 300 types of headaches, um, it does make it quite hard to diagnose. And there is, unfortunately, a bit of overlap between the, the headache groups as well. Um, you know, you can... Uh, secondary headaches, you can range from things like... Um, uh, headaches due to allergies, um, uh, um, even um, wild things with um, um, monosodium glutamate sensitivity, those sort of things. People going to a you know, Chinese restaurant coming out with a headache after that with some um, high MCG. Um, but obviously it can go right into the, the really serious pathological headaches with tumours and uh, intracranial artery um, conditions, um, so uh, it's a very complex area and, and diagnosis is quite tricky. Um, the key things for us as uh, manual therapy practitioners, um, migraine is always um, thought of as um, a unilateral headache, um, but it does get confusing in that that can swap sides. So a person might come in saying they've had a headache on the left-hand side um, but then suddenly it shifted to the right-hand side. That doesn't mean it's not a migraine, but uh, the terminology is side-locked. So they don't have to be side-locked. They can swap sides, but they typically are, are unilateral. Um, they're always described as pulsatile, so throbbing headache. They're usually around the uh, temporal parietal area. Um, visual analogue scores, uh, migraines should always be eight or more, um, and uh, they often have uh, uh, associated secondary symptoms, so nausea and vomiting, nausea and or vomiting, um, photophobia, so sensitivity to bright lights, phonophobia, sensitivity to loud noise. Um, people often describe osmophobia, uh, so sensitive to smells. Um, you don't have to have all of those. Uh, people can have uh, uh, no nausea or uh, vomiting, photophobia, but could still be classified as having a migraine. Um, there is a strong family history with uh, migraine. Um, the thing that everybody agrees with, though, with migraine diagnosis is they are severe enough to, to cease activities of daily living. So when a person gets a migraine, they have to stop doing what they're doing. Um, and that's a big differentiation because sometimes people can have quite severe tension headache or quite severe cervicogenic headache, and they might say it's 8 out of 10, 
but they still seem to be able to um, continue with their um, daily activities, working or whatever. But uh, a, a true migraine, um, people just have to stop what they're doing. Um, so tension headache, we normally describe that as being uh, bilateral and, and described as a band and, and often then you know, tension around their, their head and the neck. Um, visual analog scores are usually always less so, anywhere from 5 to 8 out of 10. Um, rarely causes uh, nausea or vomiting, but it can. You know, someone can have quite a severe tension headache and end up having some uh, nausea and vomiting, um, so it doesn't exclude it. Um, I think one area that creates a lot of confusion as well for um, uh, practitioners like chiropractors, physios, uh, osteopaths, um, it's the, the difference between migraine with aura and migraine without aura. So what used to be called classic migraine and common migraine, um, migraine without aura is the more common one. Um, migraine sufferers will often describe a, a, an aura feature. Um, so they can describe something like um, a change in sensation, a change in vision, a change in smell. Um, you know, sometimes they get uh, incredibly tired, all sorts of, of uh, what are termed transient neurological features. Um, but what gets confusing is sometimes that's what's termed prodrome, and, and prodrome stands for sense of impending doom. So migraine sufferers will say, if I get this sensation, that tells me I'm going to get a migraine, and if I don't do something quickly, it'll progress to a full-blown migraine. Now, sometimes those um, prodrome symptoms are exactly the same thing as what you described as an aura, but once the headache starts, that goes away. So they don't actually have a migraine with aura. That, that's where it's a bit confusing. Um, for us, it doesn't make a, a huge amount of difference because our treatments are, are basically the same, whether it's migraine with aura or migraine without aura. It's only the pharmaceutical um, approaches that are different. Pete, before I ask you evidence for, say, spinal manipulative therapy treatment of, say, headaches, do you, have you found that being aware of the literature that the, the concept of cervicogenic headache it's increased in its understanding by, say, the classification uh, societies. It's sort of developing. Is it become more prevalent in its understanding, say, over the last ten or fifteen years? Um, yeah, people are certainly more aware of it, um, but there's still a lot of controversy. Uh, there are specific groups for cervicogenic headache. Um, there's a very large group, cervicogenic headache special interest group, um, uh, CHISID, um, but there's still. Uh, quite a lot of neurologists and some fairly uh, uh, prominent neurologists who would argue that cervicogenic headache is extremely rare um, and therefore not even worthwhile uh, investigating. Bianca, it's really fascinating to think that when we're in practice as chiropractors and we have, you know, we all have our biases, so that's the reality, but we'd often as chiropractors go and check the neck first and foremost and um, assess and see if there's uh, restriction to movement or pain fines that can be potentially reproduced, and yet in other fields, you know, the, th- yeah. the thinking is that it's not even in the ballpark. It's yeah, that's very surprising to me. Yes, yes. <laughs> Quite fascinating. So, Peter, when we look at the evidence for spinal manipulative treatment of these headaches, how does it compare, say, with the evidence on itself and versus, say, other alternatives, maybe pharmaceuticals? What's the, what's the uh, literature tell us? Um, we're now getting quite a lot of studies uh, that have looked at uh, manual treatments, manual therapies for headache and migraine, migraine especially. Um, there's actually more studies for uh, 
manipulative therapy for migraine than there are for tension headache and psychogenic headaches. Really? Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why some of the neurologists say psychogenic headache doesn't seem to be that important or that prevalent. Um, so it's a real shortfall that uh, hopefully at some stage uh, chiropractors, manipulative physios, osteos might um, be able to do more research on that. Um, there's, there's probably over 10 randomised controlled trials now for uh, spinal manipulation with um, uh, migraine. Um, and so there are, well, manual, sorry, manual therapies with migraine, not necessarily spinal manipulation. Um, and the evidence does show for a certain uh, subset of people, um, uh, manual therapy, physical therapy is very effective in, in preventing a lot of the migraine morbidity. Um, so reducing the frequency, the severity, um, and very importantly for migraine sufferers, um, decreasing their reliance on pharmaceuticals. Um, it's one of the key things that uh, migraine sufferers look for. They really don't like having to rely on the pharmaceuticals. Um, there's a whole range of uh, pharmaceuticals that are given for migraines, um, uh, the most common ones relate to uh, serotonin, uh, so ter- serotonin agonists and serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, so things like uh, uh, immigrant naramig, narrow- um, they're uh, very common migraine drugs. But you know, you'll you'll hear people being given uh, beta blockers, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, muscle relaxants, um, uh, anti-epileptic uh, drugs, um, and of course, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, I commonly get prescribed for migraine as well. And I think the evidence, um, uh, setting aside my bias, I think the evidence shows that uh, manual therapies are, are as good, if not more effective, than a lot of pharmaceuticals. Peter, just touching on that a little bit further, is there a difference in efficacy for cervicogenic versus migranous headaches? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's a real shortfall in the amount of studies on uh, cervicogenic headaches. So uh, the conclusions are reasonably limited because of the, um, the amount of studies. Um, the, the studies that have been done uh, were positive, but there's not that many of them. Um, uh, Gwen Joel from the University of Queensland did a large study um, uh, quite a few years ago, and that was very uh, good with its outcomes. Um, but there unfortunately hasn't been that many. Uh, I had a PhD student um, complete his um, uh, PhD a couple of years ago, and, and he did two randomised controlled trials uh, with chiropractic treatment. Uh, one was for migraine, and the other one was cervicogenic headache. And uh, and unfortunately, because of the um, acceptance criteria, uh, he didn't get uh, too many people into this uh, cervicogenic headache trial. And so the um, the conclusions were, were, were fairly limited, unfortunately. Mm, so definitely an area that requires a lot more study, particularly Absolutely. for the chiropractic yeah. profession, I guess. Yeah, it's it's definitely an area we could be uh, doing a lot more work on. And, um, you know, one of the things I try and encourage uh, practitioners to do uh, in getting into research, and I think, you know, practitioners could do a lot more, um, a first step in, in getting into a bit of a research career is writing up a case study. And so it could be that you just have somebody with a really chronic headache that's responded very well with chiropractic treatment and you look at that as your first case report. Um, so, again, it's one of those things that uh, people say, oh, case reports aren't really worth it because there's uh, 
you know, what it's much more important to do a randomised control trial. But, you know, you won't be able to get to do a randomised control trial unless there's some evidence for it. And also as you're uh, upskilling yourself to, to get to that stage, it's the old, you know, walk, uh, crawl before you walk and walk before you run. So a good case report can be published and it's the first step in, in compiling data. Right. Excellent advice. Now, Pete, if we just move towards the conversation a bit about stroke, and certainly stroke and manipulation has often led to public fear in the community. Tell us about the type of strokes that can occur. Um, so the two broadest types of stroke, uh, stroke are ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. Um, so hemorrhagic stroke gen- generally tends to uh, deal with um, blood vessel uh, problems. So they can start to um, tear, you can get aneurysms, uh, you can get things like uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, uh, atriovenous malformations, those sort of things will be classed as hemorrhagic strokes. Uh, ischemic strokes are by far more common, uh, so that's where a blood clot will uh, start for a variety of reasons and then eventually that blood clot dislodges and if it goes to the cerebral circulation, you get a stroke. Um, the types of stroke obviously for us as chiropractors that we're more interested in are vertebral artery dissection stroke and intracranial artery dissection stroke. Um, In terms of um, the prevalence, uh, vertebral artery dissection um, is about one per 100,000 population. So reasonably rare but still, um, still common enough for us to encounter them. Uh, intracranial, uh, intra, uh, internal carotid artery dissection stroke, rather, um, that's 2.6 per 100,000. So they, you'll sometimes see them in the literature combined together as um, cervical artery dissection. So the two add up together, so you get um, uh, 3.6 per 100,000 population. Um, if you look at stroke just generally for the population, um, I looked up some figures today um, they said that uh, in 20, uh, 2017 there were 56,000 new strokes in Australia in the one year. Um, they estimate that there's um, 475,000 people that currently have a stroke, um, but that figure will increase to a million by the year 2050. Uh, the cost is an interesting one as well. They, they estimate the cost of um, stroke is about $5 billion per year, but then they also said if you add in the cost of people uh, missing out on uh, um, parts of life and activities with life, they then estimated it actually costs over $50 billion per year. So it's a, a massive, um, massive cost. That's a huge cost to, yeah, our health care. What evidence for spinal manipulative therapy figures and stroke? Can you share a bit about that? Peter, is the actual figures mentioned they can vary a lot? Uh, yeah, there is. There's massive variation between them, anywhere from 1 in 20,000 manipulations up to 1 in 5.6 million. Yeah. Um, so, again, uh, depending on uh, the criteria they used and the, the uh, time intervals between the, the treatment to the onset of a stroke, um, you can get quite wide variations. Um, it is one of those areas that's actually quite hard to research, which is, I think, um, partially why the figures are, uh, are quite um, widespread. 
And, and I guess, Paul, as chiropractors, that's something that we really need to be aware of, isn't it? The, those pre and post tests before we put hands on a patient in front of us. That's exactly right. I think actually, you, you beat me, Bianca's going to ask Peter about his view on some of the assessment tools because, you know, over over time there's questions about the sensitivity of these sort of tests, but at the end of the day we still want to be performing these, don't we, Peter? Some VBI screen um, tools? Yeah, look, the specificity and sensitivity of some of those pre-manipulative screening tests are, um, are debatable. Um, but, look, as in terms of medico-legally, um, when we get calls as expert witnesses, um, the lawyers will always ask, you know, what's involved with doing these tests and when you describe them. So, so they're, they're pretty minimally invasive, aren't they? Mm. So even though the, the, the research might not be overly supportive, they're a very easy test to do. And certainly um, they're very sensitive when the, um, the artery might have already started to tear and when there could be a risk. So you won't pick them up all the time, but if it's there, it's a very sensitive test. Um, so within reason, uh, I certainly recommend doing those pre-manipulative tests. I think some authors like Cassidy have sort of talked about the fact, we know, whether this, the stroke's in train and happening before it arrives into the practice and then the chiropractor may be just the person involved uh, by timing and thereby uh, there's this sort of guilty by association versus it actually being sort of directly caused by the hands of the chiropractor. Can you maybe talk a bit about that so for our, for our listeners from yeah. that So there are quite um, well-established criteria for causality. Um, it goes back to a guy called uh, Austin Bradford Hill. I think it was, I uh, can't remember what year it was, but he, uh, he's... he's uh, epidemiologist and he set up criteria for how you establish causality um, and there's a whole range of things um, that need to be established for causality and one is um, temporality so how uh, uh, relevant to the event was the onset of the problem and one of the curious things when you start looking at uh, uh, research into chiropractic and stroke um, and it's a lot of medical practitioners uh, always are these uh, so-called smoking gun cases, and unfortunately, we've probably all read case reports where um, you know the, the, it'll say here's a chiropractic treatment causing a stroke. Um, you categorically can't say it was caused uh, in a case report. That's just ridiculous science. What's even more frustrating and more uh, annoying is often when you read these case reports. The quality of the case report is terrible, uh, and so there's huge gaps. Um, so uh, you know it's really frustrating. Like, for example, I was um, I looked up a couple of case reports today, which were published this year. Uh, one of them describes a, a pre-retinal hemorrhage following a chiropractic treatment. Um, the person uh, came in for a treatment. There was no uh, no description about what the presenting symptoms were. Uh, whether there'd been any triggers for it, whether they had pain or not. Uh, they just said they came in for chiropractic treatment. Uh, immediately afterwards, when they were driving home, they started getting some spots in their eyes, uh, and then the next day they got some more spots. Uh, and so they said that this was this uh, pre-retinal hemorrhage. Um, when you look them up, um, pre-retinal hemorrhage is, uh, is quite common, again, spontaneous, and it's a very self-limiting uh, no uh, residual um, problem. So it's a, it's a pretty minor transient problem. Um, the curious thing, one of the treatments, uh, this 
particular person uh, had migraines and one of the treatments they're on is a drug called uh, Topramate, which is an anti-epileptic drug. And, of course, one of the uh, adverse events is vision changes. <laughs> no, right. Ooh. <laughs> there there's another go. one. It gets even worse. There's another case published this year. I've been trying to write up a, a letter to the editor for it. Um, it was an ophthalmic, ophthalmic artery um, a problem after a chiropractic treatment. Um, this particular case, the, they said the, the person had had many treatments. Um, the last treatment they had chiropractor had was four weeks prior to the onset of these symptoms. Um, and then uh, a week before the onset of the symptom, they developed this new headache. Now, that in diagnosis, and particularly with stroke, um, is very significant. Uh, the development of a new headache is a really important. Um, and there was no uh, further investigation of that. They didn't ask any questions about what had happened with this new headache, where was it, any, any of the basic things that we should describe. Um, they actually said that the, when they did the initial uh, CT scans, they found uh, internal carotid artery occlusion, not a dissection, occlusion. And then the person went to the hospital and two days later it then dissected. So they're actually in hospital when the dissection occurred. So you look at this and you think, well, I'm sorry, but the chiropractic treatment was done four weeks before the onset of these symptoms and the person seemed to have no problems at all for three weeks and then suddenly they developed a new headache. So in terms of red flags, um, any uh, change in headache characteristic is always a very important criteria. Um, so all practitioners, especially chiropractors, should always be asking patients about headaches and if there's any change in that headache or a new onset of headache. Um, particularly if you get a new headache and the person's over 50 years of age, that's a, a, a really clear red flag that warrants further investigation. Um, unfortunately, Paul, as you said, um, some of the first symptoms of people having a dissection is neck pain and headache. So um, the question becomes when somebody comes in with a a headache and, and neck pain, do we send them off for a Doppler ultrasonography or an MRI scan to investigate the vertebral arteries? Um, that all comes with a massive cost, as you can imagine. Uh, the lawyers in, in litigation will always say that they should have been uh, imaged, but uh, the big question is who pays for it. Mm, and the practicality with it all. And and so, Peter, for, for reassurance to the public, I mean, the, the risk associated with stroke and so the term manipulation is still very low. That's it's it's uh, oh, minu yeah, minuscule. Uh, and of course, you know, when you compare it to other things that can potentially cause stroke, and of course for us, a really important one is um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories mm. or any or anti-inflammatories broadly, even the COX two inhibitors. Um, they have uh, they have been clearly shown to increase the risk of stroke. Um, they used to say it was always after prolonged use, but some recent studies have suggested it can be, for some people, almost immediate. Um, and significantly more uh, prevalence and incidence than anything related to a dissection and manipulation. Of course, as we've seen, there's, there's lots of particular um, uh, neck activities that may be the final thing that happened just prior to the person having the dissection. So it's been as widespread as, um, you know, many sports, um, doing a soccer, archery, trampolining, 
Uh, there's been cases of uh, people going to a dentist, being in the dental chair, having their neck extended. Um, in America, uh, they call it beauty parlor stroke. So, you know, people going to a hairdresser and extending the neck again and, and they start um, feeling change in uh, facial uh, uh, muscles uh, can't, and their arm goes uh, dead, those sort of things, um, just because their neck was extended for a prolonged period. So unfortunately, uh, if there is a weakness in the artery that's going to cause a dissection, the final event that happens just prior to the dissection is probably not that relevant, and that includes chiropractic manipulation. It's really interesting, Bianca, isn't it? You know, as, pr- as practitioners who see patients with neck problems every day, these are things that Pete is really reminding us of how we've got to be aware of the red flags, amber flags, yellow flags, just to be be vigilant. If not sure, maybe be a bit more defensive in our thinking and maybe what we do um, and yeah. taking that precaution is sort of some wise advice, don't you think? Absolutely. And, Peter, just, you know, you mentioning those those red flags, a change in a headache or a new onset in a headache, if we as practice, practitioners just took that on board with every single patient that we saw in front of us, I think that could be very, very helpful. And, and then in particular, questions that just flow from that. So if there's a change in a headache pattern or a new headache, you know, really going into uh, what might be some of the causes of that, including some of the potential risk factors for stroke, so the ones that we know about, uh, high cholesterol problems, high blood pressure, um, for females, unfortunately, or, you know, use of the oral contraceptive pill, a family history, all those things, uh, certainly um, some genetic factors that could increase the risk of them having a stroke. Um, the risk of dissection, the, the risk factors are slightly uh, different, but still importantly, uh, going through and asking um, what things, uh, what activities that people might have been doing when that um, new headache started or when the headache pattern changed. Excellent. Now, Pete, we talked a bit about case studies. So if we look at, say, evidence-based practice, and for those who may not be aware of that, what does that mean and how can it increase practice growth? We may have some listeners who may be just lay people. Just uh, perhaps explain that term and how can it relate to practice growth? Um, so from a clinician's point of view, uh, we always look at what sort of results the patient uh, patients are experiencing. And so naturally as a practitioner, if somebody comes in and says they're starting to feel better, uh, the temptation is to say, well, it's obviously the treatment that's been causing that. Um, but there could be many other factors that have contributed to the improvement. Um, and so everybody started looking at, well, can we really measure and document these changes and can they be reproduced in other situations so if we had the same sort of situation with a patient and we're given the same treatment are we likely to get the same results over and over again is it reproducible Uh, and so that's where there's always the the difficulty for clinicians because they see people getting better and the natural tendency is to think well they're responding to the treatment therefore i know my treatment is successful but then unfortunately sometimes when it's tested under scientific protocols the outcomes aren't really what we thought. And and unfortunately, sometimes the outcomes are not what we thought they were going to be. So that's where we start looking at, well, really, when you're talking to a patient, you should be saying, here's what the research has said, uh, and say, you know, this is all I should really be uh, advising you to do. 
So, for example, with low back pain, we want to advise people to stay active and to not necessarily need a lot of strong painkillers. Uh, it's only if the, the pain um, is continuing they need to really worry about uh, any detailed pharmaceutical treatments. So that advice to stay active is very important. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, practitioners um, do probably uh, influence patients a little bit too much. There is certainly nothing wrong with the practitioner giving them their clinical um, experience and their clinical advice. Um, but you've just got to be aware of what, what research is there as well. Certainly some patients might be told, look, you know, there really isn't that much evidence there in the, in the science and the literature. Uh, as a practitioner, I've seen it a lot, but I can't give you any guarantees, but it's really your choice. Now, of course, that brings in a very important part of evidence-based practice, a patient choice. Now, quite often patients have come to see us because they've tried a lot of the other therapies. They didn't work, um, and particularly with migraine, as I've said before, they don't want to be relying on the pharmaceuticals. So even though there might be some uh, absence of evidence, the patient still prefers to go down that path. And once you've had that conversation with the patient, that's all good evidence-based practice. No problems at all with that. Yeah, I like the sound of that, Peter. As a as a practitioner, I, uh, evidence based practice. That's I think it's important. Are there any shortcomings to evidence based practice for a practitioner or perhaps for a patient? Um, look, I think one thing that worries a lot of practitioners is uh, we start saying, "Well, look, there's not necessarily a lot of evidence uh, for conditions that um, people might often think would respond with chiropractic treatment." Um, but again, that doesn't mean that that stops you providing care. You've just got to be honest with the patient and say, you know, at this stage, the scientific evidence, the research that's been published uh, hasn't been uh, that positive. Um, however, you know, it's the patient's choice again and the practitioner. You can say, I'm, I'm happy to start some treatment because I've seen people get benefits. Um, so we can trial a short course of treatment. I think one of the things that um, you know, evidence-based practitioners sometimes don't realise is there is a lot of evidence out there for a number of conditions and huge percentage of the population don't know that. So you know, if we're talking about uh, low back pain and look at the percentage of the population that have low back pain, the incidence and prevalence, the cost um, and how effective spinal manipulation is for low back pain, if that information was widely known, I think all chiropractors' practices in Australia could be doubled or tripled very quickly. Now, there's massive amounts of people with ongoing low back pain problems that have never seen a chiropractor. And I think that's where the evidence uh, can really, and, and understanding the evidence and, and being able to analyse the evidence and, and talk about its strengths and weaknesses and present that to the public can actually expand evidence-based practice dramatically. And I dare say, Peter, I suppose the evidence-based practice sort of aligns with research. And and so how can practitioners perhaps get into research and, and perhaps why should they? I think you sort of alluded to a bit earlier about case studies as a, as a good starting point. Yeah, look, I'm a clinician, so I like clinical research. Um, and so I think a lot of clinicians would actually enjoy clinical research. So one of those first steps might be just writing up a case report. Um, you can be involved in, in research in other ways by, you know, helping research projects. And you might be one of the practitioners that actually um, delivers the, the treatment in a, in a trial. Um, 
Of course, going back to uh, further study, um, constant uh, practitioner improvement, so, you know, not just relying on our current state of knowledge, looking at trying to understand what's out there and how you access that and how you analyse it. So uh, doing more uh, education yourself, so um, in in universities termed higher degrees, so master's degrees, PhDs, you know, that's another way that people can get into research um, and really produce a lot of uh, important findings for, uh, for society. Excellent. Hey, Bianca, we've gone through a fair bit in this uh, half an hour podcast. We've talked about <laughs> types of headaches. We've gone to evidence for treatment with headaches, strokes, evidence-based practice research. It's been a really all-encapsulating <laughs> podcast, don't you think? This has been great, Peter. My brain is just ticking away sitting here listening to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, you know, as I said, I think there's uh, there's lots of ways, um, you know, we can really improve the reputation of chiropractic, expand people's practices, you know, make their practices run better, smoother, easier, uh, you know, and just make uh, a whole lot of uh, more of society happier and healthier as well as make us uh, make us much happier practitioners. So um, I, I'm looking forward to uh, the next phase of my uh, career and, and hopefully uh, CAM Financial Group uh, might be able to help a lot of practitioners achieve better things. Fantastic. We're going to talk about that shortly too, Peter. Now, before we finish, uh, I always like to tap into the talent that we interview because certainly the people we interview have have gone through their career and developed great expertise and certainly others who are listening to the, the podcast can sometimes get some inspiration from from the talent that we interview. So, Pete, can you share with us something that sort of inspired you over the course of your career and or life? Um, yeah, look, I, I think uh, I've been very satisfied with my career being both a clinician and an academic, teaching as well as doing research. So, you know, one of the other big benefits of being a researcher is, um, you know, I've travelled the world um, many times and I've got um, great friends in, in countries around the world. Um, and so being involved in research, going to seminars, going to conferences, presenting at conferences, um, you know, you really meet some uh, incredibly intelligent people, uh, very successful people, uh and, you know, that rubs off on you. So, you know, you can hear a lot of uh, just fantastic um, uh, uh, clinical gems, pearls to help you in practice and, and really um, keep you motivated to want to keep uh, keep improving and understanding and increasing your education. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's been very uh, positive for me. Um, my, uh, un- unfortunately, uh my career uh, just recently uh, uh, took a big change. I mean, part of the reason why I, um, I finally left Macquarie, um, you know, unfortunately last year my wife died. So that was a, a massive change in my situation. So, um, you know, it's part of part of the reasons why I decided um, uh, time for a change and, and looked, uh, looking at other ways of moving forward. And, um, you know, I hope that... Uh, we can um, really help a lot of chiropractors practices and and uh, yeah, get chiropractic to the level that I think it should be and, and get the respect and um, have the scope of practice that we can see as well as um, just helping more and more of the public. 
Thank you for sharing, Peter. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Peter, as we come to the end of the show, would you have three take-home messages for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing is try and stay uh, on top of the evidence. You know, it's constantly changing. There are lots and lots of uh, studies being published. There's a lot of information being published. So, you know, trying to look at that all the time. Um, that in itself creates a problem because there is so much information to try and look at and absorb. So I think one of the ways of uh, helping practitioners is going to seminars and going to conferences and having people summarise lots and lots of information for you in half an hour. You know, that, that's where you get that expertise. People have been looking at an area for all their life. They can put it together very nicely and neatly in 20 to 30 minutes. And so uh, that's certainly one thing I'd recommend. And, look, trying to um, perhaps get practitioners into a bit of research themselves, so being able to, uh, to look for evidence and then when they find evidence, how to try and understand that, see if it's a good quality uh, paper or if it's not a good quality paper. So is it something that they should think about with their practice and change something in their practice or is it something that they can think, no, this, this quality of that study doesn't justify me really modifying anything um that would be my uh monday morning uh, take-home message excellent thank you excellent peter and look uh we've certainly recognized that uh in regards to neurology education which is a, a seminar series that dr carla and i myself own and we're, we're actually bringing you out in march to to uh talk at the integrative therapies for headache and migraine from the first to the third of march in 2019 at CQ at 400 Kent Street in Sydney. So, I mean, some of the things you've talked about today, you're going to expand, and I'm pretty certain, aren't you, Peter, with regards to uh, some of the keynote stuff you'll be doing for us? So, Yep, absolutely. So it's going to be a good conference. Looking forward to it. Yep, thank you so much for that. And also, Peter, now can you tell us about the CAM Financial Group that's been created to help chiropractors with high-quality practice and financial coaching? Can you tell us a bit about yeah, your new you. project? Yeah, so- as I said, my role is really more the uh, uh, practice management consultant and, and coach, um, so looking at not only uh, how people are uh, providing treatment and, um, you know, how they uh, they run their practice, but that can be looking at, you know, if they've got a, a team of people, how they uh, try and become a, a good team leader, developing some leadership skills, um, uh, looking at uh, the best ways of uh, financial structures, so, um, you know, whether or not they want to be a proprietary limited company or not um, and then also looking at you know once you start developing some good income and some wealth how you maximize that to try and sort of make yourself really comfortable and, and financially independent so uh, the, the the business is uh, there's another director and he mostly does the uh, the financial planning side of things as well as um, you know possibly uh, organising mortgages or refinancing and those sort of things. So that's more his area of speciality. Um, over 30 years, I've uh, uh, developed uh, quite a lot of business strategies too, and, and uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say I'm, I'm reasonably uh, financially independent and that's why I think uh, we'd like to get uh, chiropractors being able to achieve and and look at of course initially we're focusing on chiropractors but uh, eventually we hope to get to uh, to physios osteos um, uh, massage therapists nutritionists you know they're naturopaths they're all all sort of uh, similar issues in practice so if you want to find out more information you can check out www.camfinancial.com.au 
And uh, if you want to hear Peter speak, check out www.neurologiceducation.com.au for the upcoming seminar. Hey, Bianca, he was fantastic, wasn't he? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. I think I need to... Uh I think I need to get to that seminar. <laughs> yes. Looking well, forward to seeing you there. <laughs> Excellent. We certainly support that. Look, thank you so much, Peter, for bringing your wealth of experience. You know, a lot of people know you in the chiropractic profession. You've um, touched a lot of students and and uh, helped with their careers and their development of their careers. And uh, whilst the, the Macquarie chapter might be over, in the sense now, it looks like a new chapter is happening for you as well, which will, I suppose, encapsulate a lot of your knowledge over this period of time and and uh, still help the profession and, and, and its development. So, look, thank you so much for joining us tonight and we certainly wish you well with your, your new project there. Thanks, Paul. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates on Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like the show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.